0: No, scribes and Scribblers, welcome back to the NIMP section. I have on the line with me a guest from the Netherlands, who I have personally never spoken before, so I'm so excited to have her back. Uh, you may have guessed already who she is, it's Annabelle Hilla from Appleboom. Welcome back, Annabelle. Hey, <laughs>
1: thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be talking to your face
0: Oh, I know. Actually, um, almost directly. <laughs> I was saying to Annabelle that I've listened to so many hours of her voice just from editing previous episodes that she's done with Chuck. I feel like I've spoken to her and I know her thoughts intimately already, even though we've <laughs> never actually spoken face to face or met face to face or had a chat. So this is... This is strange. <laughs> it is. Weird. It's almost like like a parasocial relationship.
1: I felt that way when I first listened to the podcast. Um, I would listen to you guys on my way home from school on the bus. And I remember just listening and being like, oh, I want to interact with these people. They have such good points to make all the time. And then when I first talked to Chuck, I'm like, oh, wait, I'm in this conversation now. But I've heard his voice so often before.
0: This is so good. What was it like hearing your own voice on the podcast for the first time?
1: Uh, I mean, that one's difficult. I'll <laughs> I'd, like, I'd happily listen back any episode, but episodes where I'm in, I, I, I prepare for the cringe usually. I'm like, oh, why, why did I put it like this? I've tried harder. <laughs>
0: well, that's better oh, than my co-host, because I'm pretty sure that Chuck and Sharon have never listened to themselves on the podcast before.
1: I was considering listening back on the last episodes I did with you guys, or the last uh, Fountain Pen... Uh, no, what's what's my podcast called? Um, Fountain Companion. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Adam. <Evan. laughs> I'm awful. I mean, we haven't done an episode in so long, but because uh, when you messaged me, you said you'd li- you were just listening to that episode where I talk about the pen, and I was like, oh no, what did I tell... In that episode, I've no idea, but I
0: don't want to go back and listen to that. Who knows what I said? <laughs> We've already rushed ahead, but let me introduce you first. Ugh. Annabelle, she has elevated in status further since we last talked to her, I believe. She is now officially NIP expert at Applebomb. She's also graduated now with her Goldsmiths license. Is that correct? Exactly. Yay! Yes, that's exactly right. And she's <laughs> fully designed and made her own fountain pen and is probably conceiving multiple others in her head, if I know her well. Yeah, yeah, that would be about right. <laughs> Many more things to add to your resume. Congratulations. Thank you. Annabelle Thank is you. also uh, one of the co-hosts of the Fountain Pen Companion podcast. I believe you came a regular this year?
1: Uh, yeah, except then, then we stopped due to a little pandemic, but technically, that is a thing that is happening.
0: That's completely <laughs> relatable. I mean, we went on a break without warning for many, many months, and there was no plan to when exactly to get back together. I'm sure it will happen eventually, you know, when it's a good time for you all. I'm sure it doesn't help that you're all in different countries.
1: Mm, yeah. And so every I think everybody just gets hit by by epidemic differently.
0: Exactly. Um,
1: Because I don't know, it just it affects people so personally as well. Um, So you don't really want to push. Like on the one hand, there's people; some people have loads of time now and so much free time to do all sorts of projects. But for other people, it just became, I don't know, more stressful than ever Mm -hmm. due to the pandemic. So we don't really want to push anything. um, So I guess we'll just see when it continues. Right now, there are no. I don't think right now we have any specific plans on when to pick it up again. Um we'll try. I have some stuff to sort out on my point, but I don't know it'll
0: it'll come back I'm sure <laughs> so listeners, I really wanted to talk to Annabelle again, I think after a year or so because behind the scenes, um Annabelle and I have been chatting about her big project, which I believe she's been teasing for several years now <laughs> it's oh God this. Handmade um, from start to finish, fountain pen. Um, this audacious undertaking <laughs> that um, I think only a incredibly mad <laughs> or incredibly brave <laughs> person <laughs> would think to do. Um, talk me through what made you think that you could achieve this. You know, four years ago. Baby Annabelle when she oh. started her goldsmith training
1: <laughs> I mean I did not think that I could I didn't think I could do it a year ago either to be honest so the how I got there in the first place was um I you know I first moved to the Netherlands to study music that was actually my main goal mm-hmm. um, and I'm in growing up in music I grew up quite competitively as well so I was at the I was dreamt way bigger than I had realistically probably could achieve um and then uh due to health reasons i was forced to quit my music study um and at that point i was i was i basically had a blank page that was my future i had no idea what i wanted to do i just knew i liked pens and i thought maybe somehow working with pens would be cool um i remember emailing um Esberry brown Stephen. Mm-hmm. yes um and be like hey so I like pens and I think I want to work with <laughs> pens. What could I do? He replied, which was nice, because I'm sure he gets loads of emails. Um, and I I think the three things that he said was you could either become a nipmeister type person, um, a nib re tipper, or a pen maker. Mm-hmm. And it's really weird to look back now and to think, I did those. <laughs> I'm done now. You've done all three. Check and check. Yeah. <laughs> I, I have now. I'm, yeah. So, so I, I think I then decided. Well, what I like working with nibs. I just always like, you know, picking up old pens and see how they work, and if they don't, then why don't they work? And if they do, how can I make them better? Um, and it always came back to the nib. So I, I knew that nibs were kind of the thing that I wanted to focus on, um, which is metal. And I had no idea what study I could possibly do to make that happen. Um, but I'd always also been curious about goldsmithing in that. Um, in contrast to music, which you do and then it's gone. like You play and th- at some point the sounds disappear and then it's gone and what you did, all the like months and years of preparation, disappear until you play again. Whereas with goldsmithing, you work on something for months and then it has the potential to last centuries. Unless it's ugly and people want to melt it down again. <laughs> but... <laughs> Ideally, like potentially, that thing could just last forever. And I, I found that a very comforting thought. Um, so I thought, sure, goldsmithing, why not? I've nothing to lose, nothing to gain. Let's just do that. And I, I, I don't know, I flirted with the idea of maybe eventually making a pen. And I, th- there's certain people that I looked up to at the time and still do, um, like Jack Rowe, he's a goldsmith in the UK, um, who made his... Who, who makes his own pins from scratch and I thought well maybe, we'll see because at that point I didn't even know whether I was any good at it I remember the first week first two weeks we had to do just sawing exercises and to this day I suck at sawing <laughs> it's, I don't know why but sawing is quite challenging so I, I didn't know for ages whether I had any talent in this um, but you know things went on and I at some point I got quite comfortable with all of it I realized I was quite good with my hands Mm -hmm. I was um while I'm really bad at sewing I'm quite good at like filing (laughs) so I can always correct my sewing mistakes and so I actually grew somewhat confident in all of it
0: (laughs) I think it's amazing that you came into this thinking I like pens so why don't I just make a pen (laughs) and then (laughs) you thought about the steps or the skills that you needed to acquire to work in that industry, and then you just went and did it. I think that's really inspiring. <laughs> so you mentioned a goldsmith who also makes his own pens, Jack Rowe. What do you think are the transferable skills or the skills in common between goldsmithing and pen making?
1: Um. Well, I think the... What, what golds- how goldsmithing has benefited me in my work um, as a nib specialist is probably the understanding of how metal works, how metal reacts, um, what kind of outside influences can affect metal in a certain way. Um, also, uh, like a good idea of shape. When it comes to tipping material, the the number one skill I think you need to have is understanding what the shape does, um, and how, how the shape feels on the paper. Um, so just kind of yeah, an understanding of that. When it comes to pen making, obviously everything like the so I think the nib is is my was my nib specialist coming out, but for the rest of the pen, it was purely goldsmithing skills. So designing, um, which you know took about half a year um and then just making it making a quality product that which that was the the part where i also had to like convince school where it didn't matter that i was making a pen as long as i was just making a quality product where any goldsmith would look at it and be like this is well made the, i mean there's so many techniques that fall into this um there's obviously soldering polishing stone setting engraving um inlay there's a gold inlay in silver uh what else various finishes like the silver is blackened for instance, so how to oxidize it um welding as well, a little bit three d drawing and printing and casting um making wire out of you know <laughs> out of out of nothing, drawing wire um all sorts of things I think pretty much every every technique I've ever learned about goldsmithing has been integrated into this pen because it had to be my graduating piece, right? I had to prove to my teachers that it's not just a pen, but that I poured every every skill that I have into this. So it's not just random. it's Everything has a purpose in there.
0: And what did your teachers and examiners, what kind of feedback do you get from them um, at the beginning of the process and at the very end? Were they thinking, why did you choose to do this? (laughs) Uh, Why can't you settle for making like a brooch or a necklace or something? Right, right, right.
1: I mean, so teachers have known that I like pens for a long time. Um, Some of them laughed at me for it. Um, Others said it was a waste of my talents. Um, Whatever. Um, Some of it thought it was quite cool and interesting and different. Um, The masterpiece process usually starts with, a, with an abstract theme. They don't actually want you to know what you're going to make yet, which was kind of my way in. Because mm-hmm. you could say, oh, I'm just going to make a necklace and then we'll see what happens. But if you say, oh, this is my theme and I'll just develop it and we'll see what happens, I might as well just randomly stumble upon a pen. A writing in instrument. <laughs> <laughs> Very bizarre. I mean, Mala wrote a symphony might as well have used a pen for that.
0: <laughs> this might be a point at which uh, we should go back a little okay. bit and uh, describe the pen itself. Um, right. So I've only seen the images that you've shared with me online. I haven't seen the pen in its in its physical um, dimensions. And right. have I haven't to touched off, that. you know, I haven't held the pen itself. So from... The way I look at it, it's quite it's quite classical in mm-hmm. um, its overall look. It looks like it has a celluloid or an acrylic body on mm-hmm. which there is metal components. So there is a metal clip and there is a metal web-like or um, a very organic-looking overlay on the actual mm-hmm. body of the pen itself. And there's also um, a cap what do you call the the circle at the the top of the cap Yeah, as a there's a metal finial at the very top and one at the very bottom as well in which there's like very nice engraving um and there's like stones set all over the inlay as well as the clip um I think they look on, on the inlay there are white stones maybe diamonds or like pale sapphires and on the clip um, I don't know maybe spinels or rubies I I can, I can only guess so they're like a very deep red and the body uh, the acrylic or the cellulose it's like I it's like um that waterman sort of cracked ice mm. um, appearance where there's like a deep ruby red and a burgundy and hints of Black in it, well, it's a very attractive um, material, I have to say. Um, So, (laughs) I hope that gives our listeners some idea. Oh, and the cap looks to be screwed on. So, um, like I think of it when I look at it, it could come from, you know, any era in the last century. That's how I feel about it. You know, it's very classical. Um, Right. And obviously, I think there are certain elements which. Are going to be quite modern in technique, but mm. and and you 'll go through like the technology I think that you use <laughs> to create those elements, but um overall, I think you made an effort to make it look quite timeless maybe uh, talk me through what went into making this pen, like the physical materials and so on, which I only managed to guess
1: right, I mean, you did a great job at that also <laughs> I loved hearing someone describe my pen back to me because I've looked at that thing so much. I, I just know it inside and out. And I, it's almost shapeless at this point. And kind of like I can't tell whether it's pretty or ugly. It's just a thing, like an object that exists. But it's, you know, look at a forest too long and all you see is trees, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you're correct. So it's the, the the red material, the base of the pen, is made of cellulose acetate. Um, which is actually a vintage Schaefer material mm-hmm. um, that I that to me represents. Have, you, have we talked about what it's based on? So the theme of my sim- my pen was Marla's Fifth Symphony. That was that was my theme, and I based all of my drawings and um, renderings on that and the development of the whole thing. Um, and so I chose that dark red. Cialoglose um, so Acetate, because to me that's C-sharp minor, which is the key that symphonies symphony is in. Um, stunning material, really, really hard to come by, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't know if I can get any more, to be honest. It's 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 very upsetting, um, but I'm glad I have this one. I, I'm glad I got as much as I did, and it's very pretty. Then the overlay um, is... 14 karat gold with a bunch of salt and pepper diamonds um and one white diamond and two big black diamonds um they also all have meaning in that um the symphony deals with um loss and death and mala had I i think a total of 10 or 11 siblings um, that passed away before he wrote the symphony as well as his mother his mother is the bright white diamond that's kind of like centered this, this is one point in the overlay um, where some people say it looks like wings like a butterfly wing and right in the center of that there's a big white diamond and that's supposed to represent his mother um, the clip is black and silver with rubies you're correct on that and next time I will use spinels Because, uh, not not because it's cheaper but because this particular colour is so incredibly hard to come Ah. by technically they're not called um, rubies at that point they're just called corundums I think um, in English because um, gemologists will tell you that sapphires are always blue rubies are always red and anything that's a different colour is called a corundum um, because it's basically the same material but just different elements will influence the colour so spinels are much easier to find in that color to find that big marquise cut um a ruby I had to fly to a, a, a conference in Germany and I walked out, i literally searched three major um conference halls of gemstone vendors just to find this one person <laughs> who happened to have a, a ruby in that color and in that cut in that size and I'm so glad I found it, but I don't think I'll be able to again.
0: (laughs) Oh, and I have to um, just, we add for the listeners who can't see the pen right now, the color of the ruby is very particular because it matches the color of the cellulose acetate. Yes. It's not quite blood red. It's like blood red with a hint of mahogany, um, Mm. like a purpley black um, undertone. Yeah.
1: Yes. Almost Uh, wine-like. It's so (laughs) perfect. Yes. So the the ink that matches it, actually, um, I found is Passion Burgundy by Monteverde. Mm -hmm. So that color. If you have the ink, it's that color, roughly. (laughs) But it's difficult because the material also has so many, because it's not just one bland color. It's, you know, various freckles and whatnot.
0: Yeah. I'm looking at close-ups of the material and it almost looks like rosewood in certain patches. Um, Yeah. That really dark color. It's really beautiful with the gold over it, I have to say. The gold and that burgundy just go perfectly together. (laughs) Uh, And I I, I think it's interesting hearing you talk about the meaning of the different diamonds because um, without knowing Mahler's background and how you interpret his life symbolically and visually, the way that I would bring meaning to those different diamonds, the the colours of the different diamonds would be, I would see it as transformation, Um, you know, movement, um, whether it's seasonal or different stages of life.
1: Right, right. That's not too far off, to be honest. I love that. Um, So the the symphony um, deals with basically loss and death and the the mourning process. So you go through different stages, and at the end, you arrive at, at. what the last movement to me is is life, the celebration of life. Mm-hmm. So it is in a way a transformation from from this pure loss and pain and anger to the through different stra- stages of um, guilt and love and kind of the vulnerability you, you have to open yourself up to to in the end life. And so I love that you interpret it that way. Obviously, it's it's a very interesting idea. You probably know that, like, the death of the author, the death of the artist. Mm -hmm. At some point, once you release something to the world, it's not your own anymore. Like, as much as you intended something to be a certain way, I cannot control how people see it. So the fact that you explained it like (laughs) that
0: makes me very happy. Well, at the same time, I also really appreciate that this is a -a one-of-a-kind piece. And you've obviously put so much of yourself and the way that you think about music, and also um, emotions. Um, They really inform how the pen looks and how you've chosen every single element. Um, So there's a lot of yourself there. And I think that anyone who looks at the pen, even without, you know, knowing that background, it's very obvious how much, how much contemplation really went into each aspect of the pen. Um, Can you explain which came first was it the theme of Mahler's fifth fifth fifth? which came first was it the theme of Mahler's fifth symphony that's a bit of a tongue twister for me I'm sorry I'm sorry um or did you decide on the overall look and um the sort of art nouveau styling first
1: um I mean I I think there's a reason why I'm drawn to both um there's a like I'm drawn to that Style. I'm drawn to Mahler as it is, just his compositions I have all my life. It's kind of what I grew up with. And then the style, actually one of my best friends um, who I met at the school, she's big into Art Nouveau, and she kind of introduced me to it, even though I grew up in it, Mm -hmm. because Vienna, um, where Mahler lived and composed, is full of little um, Wiener Jugendstil, which is the Viennese version of Art Nouveau, Everywhere. I grew up seeing it, but I never realized, I didn't have the, the background knowledge about art history to be like, oh yeah, that is very clearly Art Nouveau. Um, I just saw it around me, but suddenly I had the vocabulary to point it out and be like, oh, okay, this is what it is and this is how it came to be. Um, so I, I first had chosen the theme. I, I wanted to do it that way because I, I really like that process of having a random starting point and then you'll see where you get. Um, I obviously also in my mind already had, you know, fractions of images of what a future future first pen might be like. In fact, I've designed pens before, but they never came into existence. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, first came the symphony. And with that, I also um, did a lot of research about Mahler and the artists around his time, um, artists that he was friends with as well. Um, I think most noticeably um, Alfred Roller who was his um, stage designer at the Vienna State Opera. Um, so I just, you know, I went into into lots of artworks around that time and just analysed them. I, I literally copied them. I would draw what I saw um, and just kind of try to understand how these shapes work, how these shapes align with each other and flow into each other. It's a very organic shape. Whenever somebody says, oh, it looks like a plant or it looks like a butterfly, yes, that's kind of... I'm glad that means I did it well because that means, because that's what Art Nouveau is.
0: Yeah, to um, explain a little bit about Art Nouveau, I've actually been doing my own, not research, but um, I've been absorbing a lot of knowledge about that era as well. Incidentally, because you may know that Sharon and I, we both collect jewelry. And recently I've taken a real interest in an era which predates Art Nouveau in the UK. It's called the Arts and Crafts period or the Arts and Crafts movement. And Mm -hmm. so when you talk about Art Nouveau having these very organic flowing forms, which look very handcrafted, um, not mechanized, no straight lines, really this sort of romanticism um, and a romantic view of nature, which permeates Art Nouveau. It is a sort of uh, pushback against the industrialism of the late 19th and the early 20th century. Um, And I think it's really interesting that as a modern day artist, you're very attracted to that hearkening back (laughs) of, you know, more than a century ago and the Ethics, yeah. you know, of that movement, I find um, really quite moving, um, and obviously, you're also very attracted to music from that era as well.
1: Yes, right, absolutely. Um, so, like I said, I have a music background, right? I studied harp at the concert at the conservatory in Vienna and at the conservatory in Amsterdam, and it's inter- interesting that you would point it out that way. Uh, I think it's almost. Bound to happen that way because most pens that are made nowadays are indeed just made in factories. And people love a very good sleek design. People love like the Parker 51 or the Lamy 2000, and I value them as well. I think they're very important. I think everything needs to have a purpose in a design. I don't like. I don't like to be particularly frivolous and unnecessarily doing anything I've, I want every decision that I make in a pen design to have a purpose and a reason and if there is none then why add a thing mm-hmm. um so I, I hope I combine the two and I also think that while I it has art nouveau influences I don't know if I would go as far as to say this pen must have been designed in 1902 um I th- I don't know i I guess it's my reimagination of of what art nouveau is in 2000. Exactly.
0: Oh, absolutely because I think if you look back at actual pens from that era, they're quite small. Um, oh, yeah, they have yeah. very different profiles. Um the nibs look quite different and I don't think yeah. that particular filling mechanism, uh, I assume it's cartridge filled, <laughs> that no, definitely wasn't be better, Yeah. So that definitely wasn't invented <laughs> no. back then. When I say that it sort of harkens back to that era while also um, I don't know it's sort of implying every single era that followed to this current day it, it's that's what I mean by saying it's sort of timeless it feels like it could have come yeah. from any time um, and I find that very interesting it's very hard to pin down
1: yeah it's an it's funny I have I've seen pictures of Mahler's fountain pen um, and it is indeed just like a small black kind of ugly <laughs> i mean just an ebony you know tube I mean. <laughs> exactly yeah. exactly um i in fact i read i read Malo's biography in the process of my research um and it talks about how he, he i think he wanted to compose stuff and he wanted to use sheet music paper like pre-lined paper with the music uh, staffs mm. on them um, but his mother was saying he was only allowed if he was extra careful not to spill any ink on it or oh, cause any ink stains on it.
0: <laughs> because it would have been expensive, right? Pre-stay absolutely, paper. <laughs> absolutely.
1: And he grew up actually quite poor, like, um, and so it's really funny to have read that and be like, oh, well, he would have loved this pen or maybe he would have hated it. I don't know. Cause he, his pen, I think his pen was probably the standard kind of pen that you would have had maybe on the more expensive side. I would love to know what Mahler would think of my um, interpretation of his symphony as a pen. I w- uh, what I would give to h- have him just look at it and tell me what he thinks of it. That would be so good.
0: We've already touched on your synesthesia. So synesthesia mm. is a, I don't know, it, it's not a condition. It's like a sort of a neural feature where... I think of it as like the wires between your senses are sort of sometimes a little bit across. So you can hear sounds. Oh no, that's, that's wrong. You can see sounds or you can, you know, taste, um, colors. One sensory perception sort of bleeds into another. And, um, it's very interesting. I think a lot of people have it to a certain extent and it's part of the fact that our brains are just, Piles of mush that we understand very little. <laughs> and I think, yeah, yeah. And I believe if you've ever taken psychedelics, um, a lot of people experience some sort of synesthesia or another. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. So you mentioned that um, your synesthesia played into how you decided certain elements of your pen. Talk a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So, <laughs> um, yes. I, I do have a slight synesthesia, not like perfect synesthesia, because otherwise, like I talked about how C-sharp minor in my mind is um, this deep dark red, kind of the color of my pen. That is probably not entirely accurate. I don't think, I don't have perfect pitch, so I don't think every time I hear that chord, that color would flash in my brain. It's also kind of just a color association that I have as a musician. Whenever I read that music, I see those um, those colors as well. But yeah, I definitely have what you what you described as like I will sit down and listen to music I'll close my eyes and just it's almost like the the windows that was in like 2000 something when you had the windows music player or whatever and you could make it animate the the I I don't know how to explain it do you know what I mean
0: the the screensaver how it moves around the kind page.
1: Of, yeah, yeah, it kind of moves around the page as you listen to music. And it's kind of like that, but more colours yeah. and
0: I always imagine the one painting that explains synesthesia to everyone is um a painting by Kandinsky, who Kandinsky I'm pretty Kandinsky. sure has synesthesia because it actually looks yes. like music. You look at the painting and how it sort of swirls and the plays of colour and the like bright Almost like fireworks going off, and you can almost hear the noise.
1: Yeah. Even though I don't have
0: synesthesia, he he
1: he was listening to to a performance of Schoenberg's Second String Quartet. I want to say, I want to say, nineteen eleven. I did my research on this because that's that's another reason how I had to prove to my school that I designed the thing. I was Mm -hmm. like, oh look, this is what. What Kandinsky did—that's kind of what I'm trying to do—and it's pretty much that exactly. I would. So what I, my process was: I would sit down in my room, um, in the room that I'm sitting in right now. It was the middle of winter, so I was leaning against the heater, and I was—I had a bit of wine because that always. <laughs> and you and just listen just to listen it on repeat. And just and just listen to <laughs> it, and I had all of my uh, colored pencils and my watercolor ready, um, and just I would paint as I listened to it. And cause this, That's brilliant. I don't know. There's so many. There's so many things to this freaking symphony. It's incredible. So I just tried to capture whatever I could. feel But it's it's not easy to because it keeps moving. Because the way Kandinsky did it, obviously, he listened to the symphony and then he went home. Not to the quartet and then he went home and then what he remembered of the music, mm-hmm. he painted down and lots of blue and like
0: yellowish, brownish color. So good. um <laughs> Well, now you've tried to do it yourself, you know, probably what went through his mind. But also, what I think is fascinating is that your what you're trying to do, you talked at the very beginning, how your move from making music and to making pens was like this transition from something that is momentary and experiential and very ephemeral to producing something that is very long-lasting and um, that you can hold and that will endure. And at the same time, this particular pen that you've created is sort of like your bridge um, across those two um, universes, I guess. You're trying to take something, your experience, your very personal synesthetic Annabelle experience of Mahler's Fifth Symphony um, in, you know, one winter in twenty. 20- 19 or whenever it was (laughs) and you're trying to translate that into something that everyone can see and hold and maybe experience a little bit of um the joy and miseries that you know you felt listening to that symphony yeah yeah that's it that that i think that's um very it's very deep man (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> thank you thank you uh, i'll just, i'd like to be a bit pretentious about those things yes that's true
0: no i mean um, if i i think of this as like an artist's or a novelist's first novel and if you're not going to put as much of your heart and soul into the, your first great work then i mean when are you going to do it um this is meant to right. really represent your interests and your talent and your skills as they are at this time in your life to the best of um, your ability. And um, I think it really achieves that. And it really says a lot about you. And I think that's probably the greatest achievement that you can do with this single um, piece of work. You know, that's, that's what a masterpiece is meant to do. And I think it will be really interesting to see what you do next. <laughs> oh
1: God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like no pressure. <laughs> I mean, I mean, they say, right. That, you know, any musician, um, has a whole life to create their first album and about a year to yeah. create their second album. Right. Um, I, uh, I, yeah, I, so it's it's interesting because I'd I'd been working on this for so long and quietly I didn't want to like spoil it yet. I didn't want to show I didn't want to reveal too much of it um before it was finished. And so I when it was done and I had actually passed my exam, I posted the pictures of it and the feedback has been overwhelming. Um I feel very touched. It, it was genuinely the the weirdest week of my life. Um, to have gotten this much um, overwhelmingly positive feedback about something in such a short amount of time, probably, because the feedback was condensed to this, like, one-week period, whereas I'd worked on it over a year. So, (laughs) like, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's it's just a lot of, I don't know, a lot of emotions were felt. (laughs) Um, And now, in a way, I'm like, now people have expectations of me. Oh, goodness now I need to make something just as good or or better, ideally, because I don't know. Um, but the the symphony is done. Like the, that pen is did done. Did you leave
0: any gas in the tank? Like when you were designing this pen, did you come up with ideas and sort of think, maybe I couldn't, I can't, I don't have room to put them into the symphony. Maybe I can reserve it for my next pen. Did you have any right. those thoughts?
1: I mean, I have. So the thing is, I just, I didn't, just draw the pen as it was in one go, right? I have mm-hmm. pages up and pages up and pages of of rough little sketches. I still have the original drunkenly painted <laughs> uh, watercolor pieces that I did whilst listening to the symphony. So, there's, I'm sure, there's so much more pen that could be put, like held up. What am I trying to say? There's so much more material that I could get from all of these like um, sketches that I did then. It'd be a series, so maybe. But the thing is that I. I loved the project and I loved what I did with it, but that's, it's almost kind of done. So I'm, I've actually been approached to do sim, like someone asked for an overlay that's similar. So I can definitely like go back and be, and look back at my studies and be like, okay, this is what I need to do again. Um, that's kind of similar. But I think for my next personal project, I would probably want to take something completely different and then go all in into the, this one and just discover that whole new era. Because that was one of my favorite things about the symphony was um, not just that I felt deeply connected to the symphony as a piece, but also just doing all the research. I learned so much about Mahler. I learned so much about um, the symphony. Like, I knew the symphony. I'd played it before, right? It's it's kind of standard repertoire for a harpist. Um, but now I, I really, really know it. I feel really, like intimately connected to it and that was great but I think there's new projects on the horizon where I dig like I'll just dive just as deep into the next thing whatever that may be and I'm looking forward to doing all that research to be honest being a goldsmith um, if you're if you're fully employed at a goldsmiths you don't get that much creative freedom you may basically just sit and like you repair stuff and you maybe every now and then get to do a new thing whatever the customer wants but this has almost been like a, a journey for me to kind of, I don't know, it allows you to think. and allows you to, to study and, and discover things that you didn't know before. And I loved that. I think that was maybe my favorite part of the whole process. Um, probably even more so than actually making the thing, was just discovering all the nuances to the topic um, and I'd love to do that again, but that will take time, obviously so d- i'm I'm probably expecting that a next idea of my own won't be fully developed until like a year from now, um whatever the topic may be. um I'm kind of thinking space I'm kind of thinking, okay, uh, the solar system, yeah, um because there's so much stuff about planets that as well absolutely host <laughs> planets um as well as just learn about science <laughs> i freaking love science but i don't know that much about it i'd love to read some books on that um maybe like i an element that i always came back to during my studies was fibonacci just mm-hmm. integrate those um proportions into pieces and so maybe there's some numerical things in the, the science of space that I can then integrate into a pen somehow um there's also probably going to be a wine session or two where I'm going to listen to the planets and paint what I hear you know that kind of stuff you also know that I love matching gemstones and Mm -hmm. colors so if I find a gemstone that maybe represents every planet or whatever I don't know there's so much to be done so I I just love to do another deep dive into a new a a new topic that I don't know that much about just like I didn't know that much about Mahler and his fifth symphony
0: I think that's all incredibly inspiring um your willingness to (laughs) learn new things um to challenge yourself and it's very clear that you really enjoy the creative process Um, and I don't think that's something that a lot of people think about when they when they hear the term goldsmith as a profession you know that's Mm. um, almost I think the craft the craft aspect of goldsmithing has um, it's not been as forefronted Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, it's not been as prominent uh, recently, mm-hmm. as you said. They tend to be people who do repairs um, or custom pieces to a designer's specifications or a client's specifications. And I think the fact that you obviously enjoy that, um, the the learning, the conceptualization, all that process so much. Um, I think that's. It's it's in- really incredible. And I was wondering, like, if you had a team of goldsmiths working under you, would that be like the ideal situation where Annabelle, you know, could just sit in her study, listening to music, sipping wine, um, drawing <laughs> and designing these pens in her studio and then getting someone else to make them? Would that be like the ideal scenario? Because that kind of sounds... <laughs> um- really so, quite enjoyable. It, it's funny
1: that you say that because when I went to that conference in Germany um, to, to buy the gemstones, I also went to a lecture of a person who does essentially that. Um, she's a designer for a big jewellery company and she talks about how that is what they do. They come up with a you know, a rough concept. And then they just develop and develop and develop for like half a year. And then they have all these resources available to them. They have a bunch of goldsmiths in-house. They have access to all sorts of like gold alloys. So say they want a slightly more purple um, gold, then that can just be cast for them. That's just available to them. And it sounds awesome. It does sound awesome. Mm -hmm. And, but on the other hand... If you, if I were to only draw all day, that sounds pretty exhausting. And I think, I think the balance of also making it myself and kind of do this. I'm not. I don't want to say brainless because that's stupid. But some of the, some of the things that you do, you don't have to think too much. Most of it is in your hands, and you just kind of have to think about how to, you know, how to solder a thing. But you don't have to exert yourself. Um,
0: it's more routine.
1: Yeah, yeah, indeed. And so I think I think what I did now with the pen was is kind of perfect. Um, also, I know the challenges. Um, I know what goes into making a thing, so I, I don't just have to... So I actually know someone who works at Mont Blanc, and so he says they have the design team of a few people who design all the things and how they're going to make it. That's the engineer's problems. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> um, and I like that I have... The understanding of what it takes to actually make the thing, yeah. and even more so, I, I I do love making it. I'm 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 a bit too perfectionistic sometimes, um, to my own detriment, because oh, if there's just a tiny micro scratch, I'd, I'll just be mm-hmm. polishing it away, and sometimes too long. Um, but I I do love making. I do love the idea that I start with nothing, and then it turn into something physical that I made that I can touch.
0: But I also see that you. I think you have an advantage in that you're obviously someone who has handled and writes with a lot of pens. Because sometimes I feel that pens are designed, especially when there's a lot of um, handicraft involved, a lot of processes involved in making it, those pens are often designed to showcase skill in mm-hmm. the technical craftsmanship and not necessarily they're not necessarily pens to be used or written with mm. um, they don't prioritize I you, that <laughs> exactly so I, I feel like because you still value the nib you value the writing experience um, you're also able to approach it from that side so it's not abandoned it's not just a showpiece to demonstrate um, how great you are at manipulating metals <laughs> you know <laughs> uh
1: no it no I mean that kind of would have been offensive to the pen world I think I've been here for so long uh I want a pen that writes and I want a pen that feels comfortable um like I had to make sure that the that I use just the right amount of gold that it doesn't become too heavy um and not too light um yeah I just yeah I tried to find a balance well designed well made and hopefully, nice to write with. I think it's nice to write with, but it's also my pen, so I'm kind of, you know, it fits well into my hand. Are you going to keep um, the pen? Well, right now it's at Applebaum in the shop on display. I'm very much considering making another one to put into the store and then keeping the very first one to myself. Mm-hmm. Because I really want to use it, <laughs> I'd love to just use it on a day-to-day basis. But it is mine, so technically, it's, I, c- I could use it anytime I want to. But yeah, I think I think all those elements are very important. That I do I do value good craftsmanship, um, and I don't I'm not appreciative of sloppy work. Um, it, I, it probably would be easy if I had a goldsmith who does it for me. Who's, but then he would have to also meet my criteria like (laughs) and meet my expectations which I hardly do um (laughs) I don't I don't know I'm always I would probably always aim to be better still and even now in the like in the process of me wanting to design a new thing at the same time I need to keep practicing Mm -hmm. like I did some engraving on the pen and they're good enough um actually my teachers thought that I had outsourced it which was very flattering pat on the shoulder yeah (laughs) I'll take it, I'll take it. It's obviously not. I can see so many things wrong with it, but um so that there's so many like technical things that I want to keep practicing. That was the thing with music as well, like a lot of about music is um obviously the musical interpretation, but a lot of it is
0: just getting your hands scales. to do the right thing.
1: <laughs> yeah, just like just repeating the thing, repeating the craft in very ways it is a craft, and so I do enjoy that. Um and I want to get better at that. There's pe- there's people that I look up to so much who are such amazing craftsmen. And then one day combining the like hopefully good design with like really good craftsmanship. That's that I mean that's the long haul. That's what I hope to be achieving in the rest of you know, the rest of my life. To eventually just make like actual masterpieces. I'm obviously not there yet. I've, I've literally just started. No, you need to, um,
0: you need to say those dreams out loud because I, I think you'll work diligently towards it. Like you did when you first thought, Hmm, maybe I'll just, maybe I'll work in the fountain pen industry. Maybe I'll like start making my own pens. And yet, you know, you, you managed to do that in a few years, uh, you have achieved that goal. So now you need to set your goal even higher. <laughs>
1: Right, right, yeah. I'll just put it out into the universe, yeah. and then just yeah, believe in keep it, at it
0: and work towards it. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, um, tell me about what you're working on now. Um, is it for yourself? Is it for um, other clients? Are there any like commercial projects that you're working on?
1: Um, yeah. So my days are now three to four days. I work at Applebaum. You know, doing the same old, doing grinds and repairs and whatnot. And the rest of the time I happily do commissions. Mm-hmm. Um like right now I have a bunch of gold on my my workbench to make a nib um this week which that to me personally that was probably the the biggest um fear or not not even not fear what's the word the biggest challenge I didn't think I could accomplish um with my masterpiece making a nib that writes um, cause that's not something that you learn as a goldsmith and that's not something you do as a nib
0: specialist. You kind
1: of have to come up with it yourself and try to figure
0: it out. How did you figure it out? Is it through studying nibs? Is it a, like a gold sheet that you then hammered into shape? Like what was the process of making it?
1: Yeah. So it's, so what I did, did to, to learn it is do you, do you know the Peter Bock website? For the book nibs? Yes. Yeah, so they have, like, a process on there how they make their nibs. And so basically what I did was I copied that, eliminated the things that I definitely couldn't do, Mm -hmm. and just find a way around it. So I start with a metal sheet. Um, It can't be cast because then it might be too soft. Um, So you have to start with a metal sheet, and then you have to um, hammer it into shape. And then I had to figure out what tipping to use because the grand mystery of what is tipping material and which tipping material to use and how to attach it to the nib. Um, I ended up using an iridium platinum alloy that I welded on. Um, Then I had to figure out how to get the slit in there because, like I said, I can't sew very well. (laughs) That was out of (laughs) option. (laughs) Uh, And I don't think that would ever work. I actually did it once and it it wrote, but it wasn't very pretty. Um, So I had to figure out how to do that. Um, and I also had to engrave, so my, the nib on the symphony has an engraving on it. So, yeah, so I basically took that process that I had seen on the internet, how it's supposed to work, and I just kind of made it do like made it goldsmithable. Um, if you don't have big machines that just punch
0: out the things and punch in the engraving and whatnot, I think the engraving um, on the nib. I'm, I'm looking at it now. I think it's beautiful because I think um, I haven't done engraving on metal. I've only done like lino printing. So years and years ago I did engraving on like lino print and Mm -hmm. it's always really hard to do curves, like rounded forms in a controlled way. I found that to be one of the hardest thing, you know, like straight lines. That's relatively easy, but but getting these voluptuous like curves to go (laughs) where you want them to go, especially on a surface that's not, not level um, I imagine yeah. that to be very, very hard.
1: Uh, it's very annoying, yeah, indeed, yeah. because at school I, I had um, engraving as one of the main subjects in my in year one to three um, out of four. But we only ever did engraving on copper um, and on copper plates. So always flat surface. And so we did some, it's like towards the end, we did some some rather challenging stuff. Like we had to do a whole alphabet. Um, and basically you need calligraphy and whatnot. But that's copper in its flat surface. My pen had, of course, to be silver and gold. So silver is harder than copper. So that was already challenging. And it was a ring rather than a plate. Um, and then a gold ring which takes so much strength. So I actually had to end up using a pneumatic engraving machine for that um, because I just don't have the strength in my hand to, to keep pushing and keep control. And same for the nib. So that's gold and it's, you know, it's a round surface. Um, so that was actually quite challenging. That was one of the things I was most afraid of for it to go wrong. But it turned out all right, I think. <laughs> but yeah, so those are things that any, any kind of insecurity that I had on the pen now I want to eliminate <laughs> and just get so good at it and make it such routine that it doesn't become scary anymore.
0: If you had to do it again, um, so were there any, were there any avenues that you went down, which just came to a dead end and you sort of wish you hadn't wasted time going that direction?
1: Um, I mean, yeah, there's, there's several parts that I had to redo, um, where I had to start from scratch. I made the clip three times in the end. <laughs> Because the so soldering gold and silver together is kind of annoying sometimes. And that with the added um, gold inlay, that was more challenging. And I wish I'd had more money for... Re- That's one thing about designing is if you had just the unlimited resources um, to try and experiment things um, over and over. But I was kind of limited to time and my budget. Mm-hmm. Um, But so there's certainly things where next time I know how to avoid certain situations um, and just do it better. And so that is also a freedom that I'll have now, I guess, if I'm not bound to deadlines and and stuff. So I can just make it. And if it doesn't work well, then I'll just melt it and start over. And there's no kind of time pressure. Um, and that's the nice thing about metal as well is you can just melt it again <laughs> if it doesn't work just <laughs> melt and start over <laughs> that's true
0: well I hope you never lose that ambition dream big I think that's that's obviously you know it's one of your hallmarks and I really love that of what you do um, that you incorporate so much of everything you've done before into this I feel like whatever you work on next whatever the pen will be it will be very recognisably Annabelle,
1: right? I don't know what that means.
0: Well, I don't because think I, I don't like think it. I see many people making pens like this these days. Mm-hmm. Um, there are individual pen makers, but no one I see who is taking it to the level of art the way that you are, um, and I think that's really interesting. Um, because this is so obviously something that's not meant to be mass produced, you know?
1: Right. Right.
0: The, maybe the rod that can be machined, but the Mm -hmm. outside, the inlay, those clips, maybe it's possible to, um, mechanize parts of it, um, to make it faster, cheaper to make, but it's very clear that it was designed to appear and to appear handmade and to really be made in no other way except handmade. It can only have been made in that particular way as something that is a one-off. And if you did it again, it would probably be slightly different, you know? Oh
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And while I see people, um, I think maybe like the closest thing is people who do, like makie, um mm-hmm. where it's like a technique being applied to a fountain pen and each application, mm-hmm. while um, incredibly, it, it, you know, it's very artistic, it's, it requires a lot of skill, and there's always variations, you know, from one to the other. That's sort of the level of craft that I imagine um, you mm-hmm. bring to it. And I think that's very rare in fountain pens. Like you're free to correct me because, um, like, I, I see a lot of, I think, in stores and a lot of the fountain pens I w- that we have access to, they do tend to be mass produced. You know, they're mm-hmm. commercial products and they have to meet commercial objectives, right? And even the most rare and artistically you know, resplendent um, creation from Mont Blanc, it still has to hit, you know, certain um, mm. certain targets, which, you know, to, right. to capture a particular market, that's obviously right, a right. consideration for them. And I feel like, you know, maybe it's something that you're able to indulge in because um, this is something that is your graduation piece. This is your Annabelle's masterpiece. I feel like you don't have to consider those commercial um, considerations so heavily at this particular point. You know, you're really, you have that creative freedom to really make it whatever you want it to be. Like, who cares whether or not you can make it in a way that um, is profitable (laughs) like yeah you know what I mean yeah Um, you don't have to think about like how much could I get sell this for and is it worth using those real diamonds on it like I think that's Mm -hmm. it it's so I keep saying it's audacious and that's what it is (laughs) like you know you're able to be a real artist in this. you can use whatever you can um, get your hands on and that's what it's going to be and you are able to keep the piece for yourself i hope you do keep it
1: yeah yeah i'm never gonna sell this one i'm so like especially i mean i had considered um maybe in total if people are interested but like you said i never i like i'm hoping that maybe one day someone would want to buy this pen or something similar just because of you know i want to settle down i want to buy a house and i get a dog mm-hmm. <laughs> like i I know i dream very big that I'd like to have a dog one day and be able to provide a happy home for a dog. Um, So um, obviously it would be nice if people like it, but indeed the pen was for me. And I kind of don't want to consider whether people would be interested. I just hope they do. And if they don't, then that sucks. Mm -hmm. But at least I did something that resonates with me. I think it's probably very selfish. Maybe that's... Is that like artistic like being very eccentric or whatever. I don't know. But but so rather than like there's some pens that Mont Blanc designed that are like they're like one point two million dollars and they have a bunch of sapphires and a bunch of things and that's not what I do either. Like I don't want to make the most bling bling pen ever to sell it for the most money possible. Um like I said, everything needs to have meaning and purpose in in a design. Um, so that's what I try to do and I don't, yeah it's true I don't really care, I hope people like it but if they don't then that sucks um, but for the symphony I thought if I make it again I would probably make a maximum of five because it's the fifth symphony and because I spent a year developing it so if I get something out of it that would, that would be you know helpful mm-hmm. but um, the very one that's at the store right now that's mine, that's number zero, that's mine, also because it's basically a prototype right it's basically it's basically the first one that I made and I had to kind of roll with the punches as I made it but in the future I have more experience and more resources to if something goes wrong just do it again because like right now I was a student when I made it I did not have a whole lot of money to like I I paid for everything myself and it wasn't cheap (laughs) so I had to I had to be careful with with all the with you know how much money you can spend on stuff but if i were to sell it that would so if someone asked um to uh have me make one i would probably have them pay a down payment of 50 percent of the pen up front so at least some of the costs would be covered already there's not much risk for me in worst case scenario i'll have to like i said melt stuff and start from scratch but i would also take my time Mm -hmm. so if someone would want me to make the pen again i would say it Will probably take around two months to make, um, maybe longer. But then I just, you know, I want to take my time and make sure it's as good as possible, so that I would still like it.
0: How many hours of work do you think would go into it? Not not this time, but um, if you were to make it again, because obviously the mm. first time around there would be, um, you know, there'd be mistakes, there'd be um, experimentation, there'd be do overs and things like that. I mean.
1: Yeah. Ideally, um, how long
0: do you think it would take to remake this pen?
1: Well, it, it's difficult to say because with some things I need to I need to outs not outsource, but I my old internship um they have some of the tools that I don't have at home, so I'd have to like go there as well. So I'd have to travel there and whatnot. But I think somewhere between seventy and ninety hours, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I don't. It's difficult to say. I think somewhere in that ballpark, but I'm, I'm not sure. I'll I'll have to make it again. <laughs> I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> so if anyone wants to buy it and then pay for the thing, and then I can start making it, and then you'll find out how long it takes. And also because I work now, right? So I work at Applebaum three to four days a week, and that kind of depends on mm-hmm. how busy it is. And I have limited, you know, I mean I have much more time now, to be honest, than I did while I made the pen, uh, while I designed it, anyway. Because I, you know, had my full-time internship and I worked at Applebaum and then,
0: and the Lance. rest of the time. My dog, my dog was scratching. He was, he was scratching the carpet. Hi. Can you see him?
1: Yeah. Here he is. <laughs> oh my God, I
0: love dogs. You
1: know, it's, it's kind of upsetting that, because I was supposed to have been in Australia two months ago.
0: I know, I was thinking this the other day. <laughs>
1: And then I would have met you in person, and then we would have had wine, and I would have met your dogs.
0: Yeah, so last year, um, I think around the time that Melbourne Punch Show was on, Annabelle and I were talking about, we were making all these plans about how to get you to Sydney and Melbourne for the shows in 2020, and then 2020 (laughs) rolled around, and there are no shows happening. (laughs) No,
1: and God, it's, it'll happen though. Uh, I don't know I whether 2021
0: it. is going to happen, to be honest, because like Australia is very strict about its border security and... Rightly so. Oh Yeah, who knows when yeah. people will be able to come back.
1: But one day I will be in your house and you'll have wine <laughs> and I'll get to meet your dog. Yes. And we'll talk about pens and I can't wait. That is one of the best things about my job is the opportunity to... Meet people like you guys. It's- oh, you'll be able to meet Lemon as it's- well. I can't wait. Lemon is an internet star at this point.
0: <laughs> she is obscenely cute. Yeah. Okay. Ah. So, I, yeah, um, I hope you'll continue to drink big and keep us up to date with what your next projects are. And certainly, I think it's a great idea that there'll be five Fit Symphony pens. So, um, that's the aim. And I hope you, you manage to achieve <laughs> that. Um, I have a bunch of questions from some members on FPO. Are you okay to answer those? Sure. But sure, first, first, um, tell me, what are you writing with today? Oh, no. You're not writing uh, with anything? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just woke up. Um, what do I have in
1: front of me? I have a pencil in front of me and a digital pen for my drawing tablet. Um, Oh no! What an embarrassment! Oh my god! What's the nearest fountain I have in front of me? Oh, here it's a ha, um, it's a it's a silver pen. There you go, a metal pen. Um, it's a Parker Premiere from the seventies, I think, and the section leaks.
0: Oh, is it something that you're working on to repair? Um, well, I've done some research on how to
1: fix it, but I I honestly don't know how. It's it's a little ring on the section that has always been leaking and in the past I didn't care because my hands are inky anyway due to my line of work um, but I, I don't know I want to figure out how to do it and then I'll do it but so far I've not
0: <laughs> a Paco <Parker laughs> Premier, a vintage Paco premiere what I'm riding with is a Namiki Yukari I believe it's called it's the cormorant um, it has a very, very smooth medium nib. I believe it's the size 10 um, Pilot or Namiki nib. It's like a brass barrel, I think, with uh, lacquer over it and makie. Um Very, very beautiful. And it's inked with one of the Troublemaker inks. Let me have a look. It's like a light purple. Ah, it's Troublemaker Foxglove. Ooh,
1: I can't wait to meet your pen collection in person as well. Like, uh, your collection sounds stunning.
0: (laughs) I think my collection, there hasn't been a lot of movement in my pen collection in the last couple of years, because I I set myself this goal of not going over 100 about two years ago, and I'm so close to it that there's very little room. Um, to increase without getting rid of some pens. And I don't want to get rid of any of my pens. (laughs) So I I have to be very, very select in making new acquisitions.
1: Right. I mean, how about number 100 is a pen that I make for you? (laughs)
0: Let's talk about this after the (laughs) podcast. <laughs> I love that idea. Um, I had my first piece of custom or bespoke jewelry made very, very recently, and I love. I that saw it's so working, beautiful you know, with the designer and gold. I gold love
1: that. I love the transition of the diamonds going from white. Wait, no, was it sapphires? Um, was it diamonds from white diamonds sapphires. to sapphire? Yes, so beautiful it must have been
0: quite difficult to find these perfect colours to transition the way that they did. So we're talking about um, a pair of earrings that I had made that was (laughs) bespoke and they have ombre diamonds on these hoops going from white at the top to uh, champagne coloured or yellow coloured depending on which side of the, the hoop you're looking at and Speaking of like commercial considerations, the reason we use le- yellow sapphires and not yellow diamonds is because yellow sapphires are cheaper, <laughs> but they look very oh, yeah, similar.
1: Absolutely. Just f- as soon as diamonds become fancy colored, it's game over. <laughs> like that's the end of your, of your wallet.
0: Exactly. And they're-, and they're so small that um, it's very, the difference is just barely noticeable. So we thought, you know, what's the point? Just use yellow sapphires. Yeah, yeah, that was a great process. I'd love to do that again with you. (laughs) Um, Let's talk about that later. (laughs) So, okay. Um, I have some questions then. Uh, Rob Ansell asks, has working on your masterpiece changed the way you view innovation in the pen industry, especially for high-end pens?
1: Right. So when we talk high-end, we probably talk super fancy Mont Blancs and whatnot. I assume Um, so, yeah. I think so, but I'm... Also, not entirely. I would love to sit down with people who design pens for these big companies and see their process, because I think what I would do when if I was in their position was would be completely different. Um, As in when they say they make a Walt Disney pen and then they have all of these resources available Mm -hmm. to them, they get to interview anyone they want to. Um, Or maybe not. or
0: Or maybe they don't.
1: No, I'm pretty sure they do. So so I'm fairly certain, is what I heard, is that they just get told, oh, this is the, the next theme, here's all the resources, do whatever you want. But then in the end, like, for instance, the Miles Davis pen, I remember, basically had a trumpet as a clip. Yep. And it's it's very on the nose. Mm-hmm. So it's very recognizable as in, oh, Miles Davis, because he played the trumpet. Do you see it? Do you see it? Right there, there's a trumpet. Do you see it? Can you tell
0: yet? <laughs> It's very literal.
1: <laughs> yes. And I don't love that. Me personally. So I, I mean, I, when I said, um, when I said I was going to make a pen about a symphony, I could have just put a treble clef on it and called it a day. But I think that is kind of lazy, mm-hmm. almost. Um, or maybe more commercial. I don't know. Um, so, it, I don't know. So I don't, I don't know when I think high-end because when you look at high-end art um, it can be something super extravagant or a banana on the wall um, and then people will interpret it
0: incredibly I don't know and pretend it's super deep I don't know Um, I mean look at it from another way maybe um, my intuition is that the more higher end uh, the pens are the less incentive there is to make technical innovations. Um, by that, I mean, you know, the filling mechanisms, the mm. um, the nib alloys, things like that, because, you know, because innovation um, necessity is the mother of invention. Like if you don't have right, right. a budget that you need to meet, if your budget is so extravagant that you can, you know, do whatever you want, then you have no need to um look for ways to do this better um to make it to do it more efficiently or cheaper i think that's maybe that's one way to look at it because i think a lot of the innovations that we find these days are being made at the lower end
1: yeah yeah no that's absolutely true i guess i guess that's what capitalism is all about right (laughs) make it as efficient and as cheap as possible um No, that's true. That's Whereas true. on the higher um, end,
0: um, like the price and the differences are coming in terms of like how the outside looks. It, it, it's not so much right. about the innovation of the pen itself. It's you know about right. how many, <laughs> what what kind of carving, what kind of material can we put on the outside? How much diamonds yeah. we can stick on it? <laughs> yeah, fit on the surface, and then
1: get the most get the most profit out of it. Yeah, still, yeah. just because we'll put just a ten, you know a thousand percent margin on the diamonds on it or whatever um yeah it's kind of i don't know kind of disappointing because the the you have so much time and so many resources to potentially develop you know brilliant things does that make me sound awful (laughs) Mm, no i don't
0: know like i don't don't know. know i think like mont blanc with all its engineers and all its budget it could be working on something that's more um, technically innovative. You yeah. know, is that I is mean, that too like much to fixative, ask to do though. that as at the same time as the as the aesthetic design on the outside?
1: I not I mean, the, ideally they go hand in hand. Right? Yeah. As well. Like, so I wanted I wanted a clip a certain way, but I also wanted it to be spring loaded. So I had to figure out how to how to figure out to make a clip that looks this exact way, and then maybe I would have to sacrifice some of the looks. To still make it achieve what I wanted to achieve, right? I think I mean that's the, the that's what the engineers deal with. Mm-hmm. If the design team comes up with an idea, it's like oh, we want this pen to look like this. Make it happen, and then the engineers are like, "Yikes!" Mm-hmm. <laughs> Although do do this?
0: some Montblanc special editions that I've handled are very interesting technically as well. There was one that Sharon and I saw at an event last year that was. Um, I can't remember the name of it, but it was based or inspired by a a rifle maker or a gun maker Mm -hmm. and the clip and the mechanism of um, uncapping it, it had this tension and this sound that was almost like um, loading a rifle. That was very, very interesting. You know, that sensory side.
1: I've never done that before. Mm. Loaded a rifle. Um, well, but, I I, but I associate
0: really cool. that sound with what I hear in the movies. You know, I've I never handled like a gosh. rifle either, but exactly. yeah, that, that sound.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> I think most yeah. of us no, probably haven't loaded a rifle. very cool. I almost wish I had, a, like, more knowledge about engineering. Mm-hmm. As in, if I could be bothered to study again, <laughs> if I wasn't so done with being in school, um, I'd love to, like, understand more about engineering and how... Just how things work, that, yeah, that's a cool thing. That, but then that's kudos to the to the engineers at Mont Blanc I think, rather than the designers. I don't know. I don't. I don't really know because I don't really consider myself an artist or a goldsmith. I'm in this like weird spot in the middle. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think I'm the best artist that that ever will be or whatever. I just try to make something that looks nice. Nor am I the best goldsmith just because I invest so much time into designing and, and into nibs. Um, So I'm, you know, jack-of-all-trades, but Mm -hmm. mediocre.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Renaissance woman. (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, The next question is from Leo. He asked, which pen models were the greatest influences on the shape of the body, if any?
1: Uh, (laughs) uh, Difficult to say. So there probably is some influence. I didn't, I mean naively, I'd assume it's completely original. It's never happened before, but that's obviously a lie. Um, I think you can kind of probably see the Homo sapiens in it somehow. Mm-hmm. I like the finial system, the, the my pen system, so I probably have somehow that influenced me. Then again, Jack Rowe, um, his general, how he approaches shapes of pens, because I'm very bored by... N- just standard cigar-shaped pens. Um, I feel like there's a m- lot more to explore in that world, and I think Jack was one of the first pens that I saw who did that. Um, can we put a link to, to Jack's work in the... I'll, I'll send it to you. So Jack Rowe, and he, he just kind of played with his... I think his first pen was The Architect, which was <coughs> not inspired by um, the, the, the Gherkin in London, um, so just kind of that kind of like weird rounded twisted shape Um I'd, I'd love that idea that things don't have to be just you know straight cigar shaped yeah, those are probably the two biggest influences i'd say definitely the Visconti clip as well because I love that I love their clips I love the spring loadedness of the clips um, and just how the ring on the on the clip the like the the rings in the, right in the middle of the clip mm-hmm. uh, of the of the cap. And if you squeeze it right there, then the clip will be easiest to... I think that clip is good stuff. Like, shit on Visconti all you like, but sometimes they have, like, really cool designs. But I think in general, I just... I also just kind of looked at a lot of pens and just all different kinds of clips, all different kinds of, like, overlays and whatnot. So whenever I go to a pen show now, I just... I don't I don't ever look to buy anything. I just look to look at different designs mm-hmm. and whenever there's metal involved, I'm like, "Ooh, what's going on here? <laughs> what's happening here?" And then I just I don't know. I'll, I'll just register it and it's in my mental library of references. And then probably there's a lot more influences that I'm not
0: aware of um actively. I've got another question from Leo. He says it's a non-serious question. Was there anything stopping you from adding a jewel to the nib?
1: Uh Oh, like a gemstone? A gemstone
0: onto, the, onto the metal of the nib.
1: Uh, I mean, probably the, the function of it. Um, <laughs> right, like I'd, for the longest time, and I'm still playing with the idea of having the, the tipping material not be a metal, but a diamond or a sapphire. I'm still playing with that. I think that. Tab
0: mentioned that they used to have diamond tipping on fountain pens way back. Or maybe not diamonds, right. rubies. Um, as a right. tipping on pens
1: I think Ralph sent me a picture once um, of a pen that he saw that had a sapphire tipping it just wasn't very pretty mm-hmm. so again I, I'm trying to combine function and beauty which is also the name of a stupid shampoo that I see <laughs> on YouTube all the time <laughs> if, if I were to put I mean I can obviously see myself putting a bunch of gemstones onto a nib, but there needs to be reason for it, there needs to be purpose in that <laughs> Um, like it's maybe instead of the breather hole, have a little gem in there. Yes, mm-hmm. could work. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, but not just for the sake of it. I don't think I would do that.
0: I wonder if you could carve the entire feed out of some semi-precious gemstone.
1: But would you want that? Because you, I think you would want the feed to be kind of porous, wouldn't you? For it to work well. That's the whole point of ebonite, isn't it? That it's
0: slightly porous. A lot of plastics aren't porous, are they? So the, the uh, porousness is... No, exactly. Is... That's why they're worse. <laughs> but they, they, they still work. <laughs> and, right, some, right. and some yeah, precious metals work. are slightly porous as well. Um, yeah. They're just not very strong then if they're porous.
1: Right. I mean, I I had considered, because the overlay obviously is gold and gold is very dense, so I was worried that the pen would become very back-heavy. So I'd considered um, 3D printing a steel feed, um, to kind of counter that weight, and if steel is three D printed, it's quite porous as well. Um, but then I never got round to doing that because I ran out of time. That'd be an I put a interesting in
0: experiment. Yeah. I wonder how it would write. Yeah,
1: um, I don't know. It'll definitely be more, uh, you know, bottom heavy. Is that what you call it? like the, the part where the, the nib is? Front heavy.
0: Bottom. I call, I, I think I consider neighbor. that as the front because when you're writing with it, right. it's pointed down.
1: Right. Yeah, that bit. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I, I also want to dabble just with making my own feeds because I don't, the most annoying part about this whole process, I think has been relying on other people, <laughs> just having to rely on someone who has, um, the, the feeds and the, the housing and stuff and having, having to have someone who turns the base of the pen for me, which that was in the end, the, the reason that I was late for my exam. So mm. I had to read, I couldn't, um, take the first exam in June and had to wait until September. Um, Because due to corona, everything got delayed and the material arrived late and then the person who was supposed to turn the pen couldn't. So if I could just do everything myself... That's something
0: you can learn next,
1: how to turn a pen. Yeah, 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 definitely, definitely, definitely. I mean, so sell a symphony so I can buy new tools (laughs) (laughs) and learn to turn pens and maybe eventually make my own pen material as well. Make my own acrylic. Oh my so you don't need Other people
0: for that as well. A one-person workshop <laughs> from tail <jet laughs> to tip.
1: I mean, I have the rest of my life to yep. slowly achieve all of those things one by one.
0: <laughs> I hope you have a massive workshop with lots of dogs to keep you company <laughs> while you work on these mad experimentations. I think that I so. sounds I mean, amazing.
1: I mean, right now my workspace is the room that I'm in right now, which is also where my harp is. It's also where the laundry is. <laughs> It's also where my nip desk is. Like everything happens in here, including the laundry. <laughs> um,
0: okay, one more question. Or um, well, two more questions, actually. Therese asks If you were allowed only three pens and nibs, what would you choose? I think she means three pens and three nibs, but maybe three pens and the nibs with those pens.
1: Right. Oh, that's difficult. I don't like that question. <laughs> um, I don't know, this because, I mean, I don't even own that many pens, but is that pens that I own, or just out of all the pens in the out world? Out of all the
0: pens in the world.
1: Cool. I'd probably want a really nice Maquia pen. So when I think about pens at this point, I'd, the reason why I would buy a pen is because the nib is something um, outrageous that I've never seen, um, mm-hmm. or because the pen itself is a piece of art. Um, and there aren't that many pens like that, especially not affordable. <laughs> I think a really nice, mucky something with an owl on it or something similar, I would love that. And then I love the vanishing point and just the engineering that went into this freaking retractable nip is so clever. Um, I remember before I ever bought it. I, at some point I dreamt about it. I dreamt about just the mechanism and how they did it, and at that point I was like, okay, I have, to, I have to buy one now. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm so obsessed with how they did that. Um, I need it. And then number three, probably my Homo sapiens. It was my first kind of like big purchase pen, um, like grail pen almost. Um, and just because of how much Innovation, I think, sits in that pen as well with, you know, how they thought about how to do the cap, like that hook. Like it's kind of a, an old story at this point, but when I first heard about it, wow, that was so cool. Like like with the, the spring in the cap and then the material that feels so weird. Um, and the nib, the nib that I have is amazing. It's probably between five to 10 years old. Um, it's a palladium nib. And it's one of the best nibs I've ever used. So is that good? That's a good answer. Yeah.
0: Is that, and which that nib matter? in those pen, which <laughs> nib in each of those pens?
1: I mean so with the pilot vanishing point, I like I like a Japanese medium. I think that works well for me. The Visconti with the nib it has now, because it's perfect, um, for that pen. It's a it's a gusher. It's supposed to be a medium, but it's so wet it's such a gush! i love it so much um on purpose i did that i i made it to be this upset and then the the maki, i don't know maybe some outrageous japanese grind that i can't even work like i have a naginata togi toki, toki nib that is just not for my hand because i don't write you know mm-hmm. asian characters yeah. <laughs> so i don't think it's made for me but it I I'm fascinated by it though um, I I like I I've, at the moment I only speak three languages but if I could learn more I would I would I want to learn Swedish Japanese and Spanish um, and also just learn to write kanji and stuff but I don't yet but maybe one day I have the rest of my life to learn to use that nib
0: <laughs> I think learning Japanese would just open up this entire world of um Japanese stationery to you.
1: Oh yes, probably. But also I wanna I kinda wanna like stay in my like like whenever people people have asked me whether I can grind them at something like a Naginata Toki nip. But I just I don't think it's my place to assume I know how to. Um so I think I just admire from afar. Kind of like as a musician, I I love jazz, but I don't understand anything about it. I just admire it from afar. It's so complicated and so vast, and I just like admiring it from a distance. And do yeah, and do what I'm what do what I'm good at, which you know was classical music, um, and was, you know, the the grinds that I now do that I native to how I write. <laughs>
0: right. Last question from Julian. He asks, having designed what must be your perfect pen or something close to it, do you think you will stop using others in your collection?
1: I mean, I yeah, so I don't use it right now. If I could use it, I probably would use it a whole lot. Um,
0: oh, what's the nib on your pen? I'd... Is it abroad on the symphony? It's,
1: prob- it's probably a music nib. It's kind of like a wet stub. Because, honestly, because I'm, I am was so happy to have gotten the tipping on there that I didn't want to grind too much of it away. I'm like, yes, look at all the tipping on there. Let's just not do much to it. Let's just like, grind it into shape. And I think that now turned out to be kind of like a like a wet stub kind of thing. As for... I don't... Th- no, I definitely still... I still use a ton of pens just because I usually... I usually use pens for the nib um, and for... As much as I love my pen, it's, it's probably not that convenient to use all the time, just because of the nature that it's, you know, it's a twist cap, um, and I don't want to, like, if that rolls off the desk, I wouldn't be as, I would probably be more worried than if my, some other cheap pen rolls off the desk. So I still use a ton, and a lot of, like, very not expensive. To be fair, most of my collection is not very expensive. Like, in front of me, I had, like, the the Parker Premier that I have here, I got for 10 euros at a vintage um, like an antiquity store in Vienna, um, I have a lamy logo in front of me that 's not the most outrageous pen i I use lots of things just because I also like the variation as I know what 's happening today. So my choice of pen every day very much depends on my mood. What are we feeling like? Are we feeling oblique? Are we, f- are we feeling a bit oblique today let 's go oblique.
0: <laughs> what color is an oblique nib in your mind?
1: What color is? Yeah. It really Do you cute?
0: associate like nib <gasps> shapes with particular colors or sounds? I,
1: I don't, but I think that's because it's not a color cross. It's not because it's still visual, right? So I think the whole thing about synesthesia is that it cross, like it will be a visual input turns into a mm-hmm. other sense output, right? So music is an audible input that turns into a, a visual. visual yeah. Output so no nibs don't have. It. I mean, right now because I have a Montblanc with a with an oblique nib and I most often use um, Irish green in it. So right now I'd probably say green, but that's just per association, mm-hmm. um, not per
0: synesthesia or anything. I'm conscious of the time, so I think I should let you probably get to lunch. <laughs> where you are (laughs) but I thank you so much for spending two hours chatting with me it was it was wonderful um I enjoyed every minute of it and just learning about how much passion and creativity went into this pen and I mean because I'm a pen nerd and also a jewelry nerd so I just love everything about (laughs) what you're doing um, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's it's
1: bizarre to to think that four years ago I was just kind of like a nipsection section fan
0: girl listening to the pod. We weren't doing the podcast and, four years ago. What are you talking about? Wait, when did you start? I started in twenty seventeen. No, three years?
1: Three years? Okay, sorry. Well, three years then. <laughs> um, I just remember those really long bus rides because um, I this this my school is in the middle of nowhere in the netherlands and the only way to get to where i lived which was somewhere else in the middle of nowhere in the netherlands um was with this small bus called a neighborhood bus that had like eight seats on it and it would take an hour on that bus and i would just spend that hour listening to you guys and i just think oh my god these are such awesome people (laughs) who have such a love for this hobby and i at this point i like I, I barely knew that there were other people in the world who were into pens as much as me. So Oh, thank you. It's a great honour oh. to, to know you guys now and to be friends with you. I, I love that.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, I can't wait to actually meet you in person. We hope it happens sometime soon. We hope that things clear up for you in, the, in Europe and also in Australia um, so that it can be possible next year. Yes. Yeah, so fingers crossed for all of that.
1: So let's wear masks.
0: <laughs> exactly. That should be a reminder with every episode. Wear masks when you go yeah. out.
1: Yes. Do it.
0: Normally we finish off the episode with a recommendation from each of the hosts. Do you want to give us a recommendation? It can be fountain pen related or not fountain pen related. I
1: love the non-fountain pen related ones because I you guys always have really good recommendations. Um, the thing that is most prominent in my mind right now is... <laughs> Last night I finished a TV show um called Jane the Virgin and I was just bawling my eyes out <laughs> at the end of this show cuz it's it's such a such a wholesome um TV show based um th- the concept is based on um like telenovelas um and it's about this um these three women in Miami who are I don't know where because the the mother wasn't so the grandmother immigrated into the into the states so that this the show is kind of half spanish half english which is very nice so you're forced to read subtitles if you don't know spanish which is totally fine but it's so charming um how these it's basically like the three generations of a family and how each of them experience things differently but it's also about love and romance and aspirations but these three really like strong women that are completely different there's a lot of like like the religious influence and how that plays out you know for young people and i don't know it's just it's good and it's wholesome and it's cheesy Mm -hmm. um but very self-aware at the same time and so the the, on netflix um that at least european netflix they just put the last season um season five and i finished it last night and it broke my heart, and my boyfriend came in and saw me just bawling my eyes out. He was like, oh, no, what's happening? And I'm like, it's this TV show. It's so sad, and it's over now. <laughs> and so just the, the, the pilot um, kind of explains everything already in that. So it's it's Jane. She's a virgin, and she gets pregnant because she gets accidentally inseminated <laughs> by her um, gynecologist. <laughs> and that's just how it that kind of absurdity as well, um, that's just what we're rolling with. Like, anything can happen, because it's so based on those, um, like, telenovelas where anything can happen. Um, Evil Twin? Sure. Coming back from the dead? Sure. Why not? Why not five times? But it just, it works in that world, and it's, it has a lot of, like, um, visual... Um, cues like things will come to life and or if someone falls in love their heart starts glowing just to, to make it like but it's so beautiful and just kind of works and it's wholesome and I think we need that right now <laughs> like the world is literally falling apart and burning down and so just that little distraction was it did me well <laughs> so what is your recommendation?
0: Um, my recommendation It's a general recommendation. So it was quite uh, shocking back in, I think, the beginning of summer, maybe in May or so. One of the very small, slow fashion brands that I've been following and that I've been really a big fan of for the last couple of years, it abruptly shut down its doors because they couldn't make um, the finances work because of the way that COVID was hitting the US. Um, mm. It was a brand called Elizabeth Suzanne. Um, they they make everything to order. So you pre-order it and then there's like a very long lead time and then it gets shipped to you. And that slowness of the ordering process, waiting for it to come, it really, I think, forces you to be quite thoughtful um, and contemplative about what you want and how you plan to wear it because it's not like instant gratification. It's, um, you know, something, you know, it's going to take maybe three months for this to be delivered to you. So you really have to think in three months, will I still want this, you know, um, Mm -hmm. is it worth, you know, that money and also the time for me to purchase this item? Am I really going to wear it? And I really liked Mm -hmm. that side of, um, slow fashion and, When the owner and the creative director of this brand, Elizabeth Suzanne, when she posted on Instagram that she she regretfully had to shut down her business, it was just really confronting, you know. Um, And I kept thinking about all these small makers and small garment um, brands who are really trying to um, produce fashion more ethically. Um, and in a more durable and a lasting meaningful way and how hard it is for them in this current um, environment with all its instability, all the logistical issues um, and I'm being unable to work like in close quarters. So um, my recommendation is really support. So, so when, Nowadays, when I, tr- when I buy clothes, I really try to think about how far that thing travelled to reach me,
1: mm-hmm. where
0: the materials came from, where it was made, and to the greatest extent possible, I try to make sure that it's made locally. That's not always possible with some fabrics because Australia, it doesn't produce like a lot of silks and things like that. I don't think we even produce a lot of cotton, but as much as possible, I would like it to be made in Australia, um, assembled in Australia, and if possible, Australian business. And I like the idea that I'm helping these local businesses just stay afloat in this environment because we're going to need them, um, like they're part of our community, you know. And I really hope that we come out of COVID thinking more about our consumption and thinking, being more thoughtful about our consumption. I don't know if you remember at the very beginning of um, lockdowns, the global lockdowns, when the garment producing centers in like Sri Lanka and India and Bangladesh, they had to shut down. And. Mm-hmm. Because the the companies that ordered those clothes were all in the West and the retailers weren't selling anything, often those orders
1: were not fulfilled. Them, they wouldn't right? pay them, exactly. Yeah. So
0: all these orders that they'd already half finished making, or maybe they completely finished making, they just never got any money for that work. And somehow this is not illegal, you know? Yeah. And I think most of us kind of knew that this was happening, but um, this really just kind of blew up. And I hope more people will continue to think um, about that and how unethical that is. Um, and yeah. we try to make more thoughtful purchases in future. So that's my recommendation. Do research into your local brands because there are so many. Like, think of all those people who started suddenly making face coverings, you know, yeah. in their isolation. <laughs> um, and, like, maybe get in contact with them. Maybe they can make clothes for you as well. Um, maybe getting sew- get a sewing machine and make your own because I think that's a yeah. great thing to, to learn to do as well. Yeah. Don't buy fast fashion. <laughs>
1: I don't really buy a whole lot of clothes. Whenever I buy something, I wear it till there's, until it's basically just a big hole. Like I, I think I'm just too lazy to buy a lot of clothes. Um, but when I do, or with any purchasing decision, I make, I think about them for a long time. But what, last year, at some point, I was at work and I was wearing these um kind of overalls. There, and they tore while I was at work. <laughs> and they're just like right down the crotch. And then I, I was like, oh, no, I, I can't work. Like, oh, like no. there'll be customers. <laughs> That's not good. So I asked uh, my boss whether I could um, work, walk out and just find a shop nearby yeah. to quickly buy something. And I found this adorable little shop um, that, incidentally, made a dress that I had pictured in my mind for so long. And they use old scrap material. Um, oh, amazing. So this is like this it's it's kind of like pinafore type of dress. Um, so kind of like flare out and flare out kind of dress made out of scrap jean mm-hmm. material. and it's so good and it's obviously it's on the pricey side, and I understand that as students you might just not have that kind of budget, yeah. but it but it lasts you so much longer as well. Mm-hmm. So I don't know in my in my opinion, I'd much rather spend a bit more on a piece of clothing, but I know it'll last me longer. Um, and because it's more expensive, I take better care of it. I mean, that's kind of an idea about pens as well, right? We could just buy ballpoints and then throw them out when they're empty and then buy a new one, but we could just take better care of what we have as well.
0: I'm actually trying to learn how to darn so I can, like, fix... (laughs) <laughs> fix holes in my knitted clothes and, like, my socks and stuff. I think that'd be such a useful thing to oh, do.
1: It is. And it was. It used to be pretty standard stuff to know how to do as well. Oh, like. I
0: know. I would fail home economics. <laughs> <laughs> Except maybe gardening. I think I can do that.
1: Yeah, you're doing great. Your garden looks so good. That's another reason I want to come visit. I just want to see your garden. <laughs>
0: it's been very therapeutic in my solitude, gardening. It's It takes so much time, though, I have to say. It's, like... Two, two hours a day. Just, really? Yeah, yeah. So I get up at Even like six th- in the morning and I like spend two, two hours in, in the garden, um, like watering, um, squishing mm-hmm. aphids, things like that, especially because it's spring. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of um, checking for health, soy moisture, um, things like that. In the winter, you know, you can just sort of leave it. It's all dead anyway.
1: <laughs> right. Oh, that's two hours. How big is your garden?
0: Uh, quite big. Right. Epic. Right. I'm in the suburbs. I'm so <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I try to put as many plants in it as I can. There's there is some lawn because I have a dog and the dog needs a bit of grass. But um right. like a lot of plants all over the place. Yeah, yeah. We
1: we don't have a garden because it's Netherlands and everything's tiny. Yes. <laughs> um <laughs> but we just kind of turned our living room into a garden with like a bunch of plants. And a bunch of them died over the winter, but alas. We tried, but we got some, like, bugs that kind of ate away at them. And then we tried to get different bugs that would eat those bad bugs. (laughs) That didn't work either, so (laughs)
0: alas. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Annabelle. Really enjoyed having you back, and I hope you'll make another return at some point, you know, at your next stage when you've achieved your what do you call it? Um, your PhD in um, <laughs> nibry tipping or something. You have to create your own qualifications at this point. You know, there's, yeah, there's really I mean, nothing official beyond this.
1: <laughs> I, I know. I know. I, I, you know, even when it comes to the title of nib specialist, mm-hmm. like, what does that even mean? How do you become that? I don't know. You just kind of <laughs> do it until people think it's good enough. I don't know what I'm doing. Just, I don't know. But I'll, I'll I'll obviously keep you in the loop. Thank you so much for having me. It's such an honor. I'm so glad I get to talk to you guys and to be friends with you guys. And I can't wait to visit you in like in real life at some
0: point in the future, if the planet survives. This is Diana, and I've been with Annabelle. Thank you, listeners. Past and future episodes of this podcast can be found at thenipsection.com and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hop onto Apple Podcasts, rate us, review us, recommend us to your friends. Want to share your thoughts, suggestions, and feedback? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at thenipsection at gmail.com. You can also comment at us on the Nip Section Facebook page or at the Nip Section on Twitter and Instagram. The Nip Section is the official podcast of Thumb Pens Oceania. Our producer this episode was Diana Die. Recording and editing was done by Diana Die. Our music was composed by Michael Pierce. Our logo was designed by Will H. Smith. That work by Melissa Graff. Thanks for listening.